Hello, my name is Chris Kerr, Executive Director of the Ignatian Solidarity Network, and thanks for joining us for this special edition of Just Conversations with Jamal and Nate, which was recorded during the Ignatian Family Teaching for Justice. Thanks for listening. Welcome back, everyone. Uh, we hope you had a nice break and had a chance to recharge. Uh, for this large breakout session, you are in Applied Anti-Racism, Increasing Justice and Equity Through Action. Um, and I'm now happy to introduce our two speakers. First, Jamal Adams is the principal of LaSalle College Preparatory. Previously, he was the Director of Equity and Inclusion and Director of Faculty at Loyola High School of Los Angeles. He holds degrees from Columbia University and Loyola Marymount University. And second is Dr. Nathan J. Sessoms. He's the principal and CEO of Success Beyond Measure, a diversity and educational equity consulting firm. He's the former director of the Office of Black Student Services at Loyola Marymount University, where he continues to serve as an adjunct professor. Jamal and Nate are the hosts of the new Ignatian Solidarity Network podcast called Just Conversations with Jamal and Nate, focused on race, faith, and Catholic education, which you can find wherever you listen to podcasts. I'd now like to welcome Jamal and Nate and Jamal to start. Crystal, thank you so much for that wonderful introduction. And, and it's really uh, our pleasure to be in this space with you. Um, and, and for all of you all that are part of the Ignatian Family uh, Teaching uh, for Justice's uh, virtual space today, Nate and I, um, and our uh, love for this work and our love for, uh, for the Ignatian Solidarity Network um, are, are honored to be here right now, spending time um, doing uh, the work and talking about the work. And so we hope today uh, to walk you through a number of different things um, to give you an insight into what uh, we think is uh, kind of the next frontier of anti-racism work um, to encourage folks to stay in it. Uh, and then hopefully with a little bit of Q&A on the back end to answer some of the more poignant questions that maybe arise from our um, session. So if we go ahead, we'll pull up our slide deck here and we'll get started. Uh, like so often in this work, uh, Nate and I really truly agree that uh, to do this work and to do this work well, right, is that we want to um, begin with making some agreements about what today is and, and, and maybe what it isn't. Um, first off, this is a very brave space. Uh, we want uh, folks to approach this with new ideas, to come up with new ways of thinking, and, and those things are, are welcome. Um, because of technology, and this is not necessarily a physical space, but we would remind, like, when doing this work, some of these things really, uh, I think, help facilitate uh, these conversations. Secondly, one, one mic, one voice. Uh, we, uh, particularly uh, together, when talking about ideas, try to practice active listening. Um, agreeing to let one person uh, make their point and really allow them to uh, complete their thought, right? Interruptions and things of that sort make for uh, cause emotions to rise up and, and oftentimes uh, dilutes our message. Respect is valued. We may not agree, but we will respect each other uh, and, and, and what, uh, what each of us is positing into the space. Uh, I think, again, everyone's agreeing and this has signed up to be here uh, by, uh, by choice, and therefore uh, we're gonna assume that folks enter this space with the best intentions and with goodwill. Uh, what is said here stays here, right? We're gonna be asking folks in a brave space to be vulnerable, uh, but what we learn, what we learn, we hope we can take and apply 
uh, in the world in a way to heal and to bring understanding and, and, and solidarity. Using I statements, when we speak about our experiences, that we speak about uh, our personal perspective versus uh, creating um, larger uh, uh, or creating a context about a group of people uh, which uh, invite in um, um, assumptions and biases and things of that sort uh, or generalities uh, as stereotypes that could uh, derail our conversation. Um, and then our last two, uh, we wanna definitely um, um, keep cure personalis centered in our work and that, that idea of uh, stepping up when needed and stepping back, right? Step back and make sure that there's room for other voices. We wanna hear from folks and we will have a good robust 20 minute Q&A, uh, but uh, you know, in a real way, we wanna make sure that all, all perspectives are brought forward. And last but not least, I would say this is something that has really um, been poignant in my practice and particularly uh, when talking with Nate and, and doing some of this work together. One, we invite you to stay engaged. Um, and, and, and for those that maybe are new to this space or new to this work, uh, I invite the idea that you may be uncomfortable, but I promise you, uh, particularly in this next 50 minutes or so that we're together, you are not in danger. That those emotions uh, that may feel a bit uh, uh, uncomfortable and anxiety feeling um, are normal and that they will hopefully allow us and all of us to move to the better side, but we are not in danger when we have these conversations. Um, our agenda today um, is to try in the next 30 minutes or so to kind of talk a little bit about why now and why us. Um, I, I will do a little bit of that, then I'm gonna pass it to my, my dear friend, Dr. Sessoms, to, to really define anti-racism and really try to understand a little bit of the post-George Floyd era. Where are we right now again? Um, and then uh, in thinking about applying anti-racism, uh, uh, anti we're gonna invite Crystal to come back and join us and we're gonna walk through some four essential questions. And then, as I said, uh, Q&A. So why now and why us? Um, I think the why now is, 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 is fairly evident in that uh, we continue to kind of on a day-to-day -day basis, uh, regardless of whatever, uh, I would say sphere of society, particularly uh, from a United States basis, uh, we continue to see uh, that race um, motivates, illuminates um, uh, any and all issues, be it uh, the pandemic and our response to COVID-19 or vaccines, uh, be it uh, our educational attainment, uh, interaction with law enforcement, um, and a multitude of other, you know, uh, immigration, uh, food insecurity, uh, homelessness, all those things, um, when, when examined um, and we look at outcomes, uh, we could determine uh, various things as it relates to to race and and when I think why us um, and and particularly I think this illuminates why we were interested and engaged in doing the podcast with ISN is that I think oftentimes um, when um, people of color uh, have a chance to have conversations we we oftentimes we get back into our uh, into our kind of in groups. And, and we spend a lot of time there and, and there aren't oftentimes a lot of insight. Um, hopefully uh, what you will see with, with Nate and myself uh, are two men uh, who have made this work scholarship, uh, but, uh, but more importantly, um, we oftentimes bring our lived experience and that lens to this work. And our conversations between the two of us um, really are at the crux of um, not only healing ourselves, uh, but asking those questions of how can we be helpful in our communities and beyond, um, and and ultimately 
we want to invite you guys into those conversations. So uh, that really is why us um, and why now. Um, and with that, I'm going to go ahead and pass it on to Nate and allow him to walk us through the next couple of, uh, of points on our agenda. So Nate, welcome to this afternoon. Thank you, brother. Appreciate you greatly. Always good to connect and share the space with you um, and the rest of our ISN family. And uh, hello to all of our uh, participants uh, this morning slash afternoon. Um, you might remember that last year, if, if you attended our session, uh, Jamal and I really broke down uh, anti-racism and provided a definition. One of the reasons we did that was because um, uh, during the summer of 2020, there, there was a lot of sort of haziness and murkiness around what exactly anti-racism uh, is. Uh, as we all know, it's hard to engage in something that you can't define. Uh, so we wanted to come up with a concrete definition for what exactly anti-racism is. So we define anti-racism uh, in what uh, looks to be a very wordy definition, but we'll break it down and then provide a sort of a short snappy one for you. But uh, one of the first things you have to know about anti-racism is that it's active. It's very intentional. Um, you do not slip uh, into anti-racism or get engaged with it via happenstance. Uh, it's an active or intentional means of eradicating racism and all forms of oppression and marginalization uh, and the structures that perpetuate it, right? The vehicles through which uh, racism, uh, um, discrimination, marginalization sort of flow through society and permeate society to the point that it impacts all of us, whether we know it or not. Um, and, and we do this in a few ways. The, the first way is through personal accountability. Um, friends, all of this work in race, uh, you, can, you can term it justice, um, uh, anti-racism, all of this work uh, emanates from the self, right? It begins with the self uh, and where you stand um, and who you are. Um, next, we can turn the page and start to think about uh, the elimination of policies and practices that result in or lead to uh, inequitable outcomes. And we can you know, think about all kinds of examples here, right? We can think about uh, um, currently as, as we're having this, this, this engagement, uh, median household wealth in the black community is one-tenth that of median household wealth in a white community. That's, that is a glaring disparity. But to understand the reasons why that statistic exists, we have to go back to the 1940s and think about the GI Bill, which some people who are participating probably know something about. Uh, the GI Bill was supposed to lead to um, uh, educational opportunities and housing opportunities for GIs once their tours of duty were over. That worked in uh, for white GIs. It did not work for GIs of color and some uh, GIs of Jewish descent. Um, and so uh, if you allow one population to participate in the wealth game, because we know that home ownership uh, is the primary way that people accumulate wealth in the United States, and you hold a, another population of people back for 30 years and then let them engage, you're going to end up 70 years later with uh, uh, inequitable outcomes, right? So anti-racism seeks to engage with and now curb or uh, break down policies uh, like that. We can also shift our attention to systems of oppression and marginalization, like structures, right? These are ways that marginalization and oppression are sort of flow through society and impact us uh, and make our lives or the lives of uh, historically marginalized and oppressed populations uh, more, more arduous, right? More difficult. Um, if we think about something like the SAT exam, which people put a lot of, um, uh, give it a lot of cachet and gravitas, um, you know, not all students are prepared to take that exam in the same way. 
So a lot of students from urban public school districts don't get the type of training they need to succeed on the exam. A lot of students in, let's say, suburb, some suburban public school districts do. And then the statement is made that, you know, student X uh, is not prepared to do well in college. That may not be true because we're not looking at how all students are prepared. They're not all prepared the same way. So those are a couple of examples within a couple of institutions, housing and education, uh, that our policies uh, have failed us in this country. Um, and so ultimately what we're trying to do with anti-racism is create a more equitable, more egalitarian society for all people, right? Um, shifting gears and thinking about uh, continuing through the definition, a lot of people get sort of stuck on the, the race part of anti-racism. And Jamal and I wanna make sure that uh, when we speak about anti-racism in detailed ways, that race is but one uh, factor, one variable through which people can be oppressed and marginalized, right? Uh, to that end, uh, anti-racism has been applied um, in uh, historical context. We can think about uh, voter suppression attempts um, uh, and the uh, and Bloody Sunday in March of 1965, um, the Edmund Pettus Bridge, people like John Lewis marching and then getting um, um, you know, beat down by police officers and left you know in the street. That was 1965. As a result of of that march and other activities. Uh, we see the Voting Rights Act passed in this country. Um, again, that was 1965. It's 2021, and I think what Jamal last last count, like 45 or 46 states uh, are, are working to pass uh, legislation to suppress the vote. So anti-racism is involved in uh, historical attempts uh, at marginalization and present-day attempts. Um, a lot of uh, individuals, when they engage with this work, uh, see oppression, marginalization, uh, discrimination as something that happens between two individuals, right? So if two people uh, exchange harsh words, one person accuses the other of using racist rhetoric, uh, they have to, as adults, deal with that, okay? But we can't forsake the, the idea that, um, you know, racism, oppression, mar marginalization occur at institutional levels, right? Much broader than the in interpersonal level, right? And so th that attacking marginalization and discrimination within that context is much more difficult, right? Institutions have been um, at work for a very long time, and it takes a lot of work to undo um, policies, procedures, practices within institutions. Um, finally, anti-racism is at work in uh, very uh, overt instances, right? So we can think about the heinous murder of George Floyd and other instances of police brutality, but also it works uh, in covert spaces, right? Like boardrooms where uh, CEOs of corporations are making millions, um, but feel challenged to provide their uh, staff uh, staffs with uh, a living wage, right? So these are some of the different contexts we see anti-racism being used. Finally, one point we wanna make, uh, people often confuse anti-racism with anti-Black racism. So Jamal and I will be in spaces and people will say, yeah, anti-racism, Black Lives Matter, and George Floyd and um, certainly uh, Black Lives Matter, the movement uh, utilizes an anti-racist stance for sure. But um, we wanna make sure that people don't conflate the two. Um, uh, anti-racism is not solely focused on, uh, on, on, on the black community. Now, having said that, it's also important that we articulate the fact that uh, anti-racism does not dilute the claims of the black community, right? Uh, nor the Latinx community, nor the Asian community, any community, right? Um, what anti-racism does is uh, it highlights the fact that uh, racism, oppression, marginalization are systemic in society. They impact all of us, whether we know it or not, whether we're willing to admit it or not, 
Um, and, and to that end, we are all responsible, right? For, for addressing it and ultimately mitigating it, right? So it is, it is anti-racism shines a light on society and says, what are you willing to do to create the society in which you'd like to live? Uh, Anti-racism is, is, is obviously critical, but uh, it's become even more critical um, in the last 18 months or so, uh, because uh, we now live in what Jamal and I like to refer to as the post-George Floyd era, right? Uh, some of you may have noticed that a lot of celebrities, you know, actors, you know, politicians, uh, we just saw uh, John Gruden, the, the former head coach of the Las Vegas Raiders. Um, you know, society is holding institutions and individuals accountable in ways uh, that we've never seen. Um, so it's really critical that people understand the context that is uh, calling them and holding them accountable uh, for listening and learning, right? At this point, uh, those voices that have historically been pushed to the margins are now being centered, right? Um, the understanding that people are being held accountable to themselves on a regular basis. So let's not talk about education only after the murder of George Floyd. People should uh, routinely be in the, in the practice of watching documentaries, watching movies, reading books, checking out articles. There are a lot of anti-racist uh, reading lists that are out there floating around the internet. They are accessible. Um, Jamal and I talk regularly about uh, how do we motivate and assist uh, people who are interested in this work and understanding the importance of continuously engaging with it. Uh, again, not just when there's some heinous act that's on CNN or MSNBC, but continuously engaging in dialogue around uh, anti-racism, racism, oppression, and how to do better and be better. Uh, these issues affect people's lives, some people's lives on a daily basis. Therefore, we all have to be engaged on a regular basis. Um, we, we know that in this area, individuals are reviewing, reflecting, and revising their attitudes, behaviors, and beliefs. So at an individual level, people are being challenged, but also at an institutional level, right? Colleges, universities, uh, parishes, uh, various organizations and entities are reviewing, reflecting, and revising their policies, procedures, processes, and in some cases, their personnel, right? Anti-racism causes you to make some very difficult decisions. Ultimately, we're trying to create greater levels of transparency in this era and help everyone understand that we are all being held accountable, right? Uh, not just line staff, but everyone in the C-suite is being held accountable as well. Um, so we all have a role to play and it's important that we understand the context in which we're trying to uh, do this work. Outstanding. Thanks, so Appreciate you. At this point, do we want to bring in our, our amazing MC, Crystal? Yes, yes. Lead us, lead us in answering or addressing some questions. Yes, thank you, thank you. All right, so our four essential questions that we are all invited to reflect on and we'll have expertise of Jamal and Nate um, share some thoughts on them are, while we know what anti-racism sounds like in theory, what does it look like in practice? Number two, how do we embrace faith and mission while navigating the inevitable conflicts we find on the road to anti-racism? Three, what steps should be avoided when attempting to develop an anti-racist environment? And four, how do we develop measurable anti-racist policies while embracing accountability? Thank you, Crystal, appreciate you uh, doing that part. Nate, why don't you, uh... I'll put it back to one. Why don't we start there and, and uh, keep, allow you to 
continue to, to, to help us and I'll get to the next one. Sounds good. Um, and thanks, Crystal, for sharing those questions uh, with, with everyone. Um, right. So um, we've just defined and, and talked a little bit about anti-racism. Um, and I think in the wake of the murder of George Floyd, uh, people were, uh, you know, and Jamal, you remember this, we used to talk about this all the time. Everyone was coming out with their statements and talking about being anti-racist and, um, you know, how they wanted to stand with, you know, the black community. And, you know, then a few months passed and I think people realize, institutions realize, okay, now we should do some work. Now we should actually deliver on what we promised. Right. I think it's important to understand one of the most powerful things about anti-racism is it forces you to engage with yourself. If, if you're an individual, you have to look in the mirror. If you are an institution, uh, you have to come to grips with and think about uh, who you are, who you have been and who you're trying to be. Uh, and so I think I think the answer to that question uh, is going to be specific to the person and to the institute. There is no cookie cutter approach uh, to this work. Um, I think obviously people have to uh, certainly understand anti-racism as a very direct approach to addressing marginalization. There is no dancing. Uh, you can't uh, sort of stand in the middle. I think something that Jamal and I often talk about is this idea of, um, I think sometimes people do the dance and try to stand it because they don't really want to engage in, or they're trying to avoid conflict. Um, and Jamal and I talk a lot about the fact that conflict is actually okay. Uh, there's nothing wrong with conflict. Something that uh, that our good friend Henry Ward, uh, my former supervisor, used to used to talk a lot about. Um, uh, it's how you manage the conflict that's most important, right? If we think about any uh, type of engagement uh, that we might deem fulfilling, it could be mentoring, it could be engaging in um, you know undergrad or grad school or even good friendships, right? It, if almost someone says they have a good friend, my assumption is that that uh, You've, you've actually gone there, if you know what I mean, with that friend. You've had some heated moments so that you both know where you stand. But this idea that we can do anti-racism work and please everyone and, and everyone's going to be fine and smiling all the time, I, that, I don't believe that that's true. So, um, you know, anti-racism, we have to understand that conflict is part of the work um, and that it is challenging, uh, but it's certainly fulfilling and certainly uh, worth it in the end. Well, I don't know if you want to chime in on that one or. Yeah, and I may segue. I mean, I, again, I think, uh, um, uh, as Nate said, I think it's it, the, from a, from a practice, practical standpoint, I think it is it's definitely a roll your sleeves up and, and get to work. And as we've kind of already engaged some questions that are coming through the chat um, around specifics, um, I, I'll, I'll lean back on what, what Nate said around our conflict. And, and, and really, I think that is a good segue into two. So, so how do we embrace our faith and our mission and, and really at the center of our podcast in a way that allows us to navigate these inevitable conflicts? And so I, I guess I'd start with the idea that, that one, um, we are, our documentation around this work is so robust. Um, um, there is um, particularly our Ignatian heritage, uh, tomes and tomes of, of thought leaders who have professed that um, if we really are trying to bring the kingdom of God here on earth, um, the way that we look and interact with each other uh, should be similar to the way that uh, the Lord does. And that, and that all of us as God's children um, have a place at the table. I think a lot, I'll start with even like our first tenet of social Catholic teaching um, that, you know, that we, we see the dignity in every human being. I think that that leads us and gives us a lot of space uh, to begin to, to start to, to have these conversations. Um, um, you know, what is our commitment uh, to being uh, just, uh, to being 
um, places that that solve uh, the ills of the world. I love I love like uh, Father uh, Greg Boyle often talks about um, the ideas of kinship and mutuality. How how can we be in relation with each other where we see the full dignity of each other? But secondarily, how can we imagine a world or policies or things in place that allow us to um, know that our destinies are tied together? Because when I really think about uh, racial equity work, and this is where I would say um, this is the, the leap for us with our faith, right, is that our faith often talks about that we want to change hearts and minds. And I think that is really good work. I think we have to engage, as Nate said, with our friends um, and ask them to have uh, those type of moments that they open up and think about their the, um, the possibilities um, and changing up their perspectives. Uh, but but I'll, I'll, I'll lean on a quote from 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 Dr. Kennedy Kennedy that says that you know racial equity is not a problem of bad people but bad policy. And I think when we think about mission, right, our faith allows us to engage with our individuals, those in our communities that we want to deal with. Our mission, our mission asks for us to advocate and walk and, and, and push and attack power in a way that really sees our marginalized brothers and sisters in a loving way and wants to solve their problems. And again, um, if, we, if we imagine um, faith, I, the way I think about it, my faith um, allows me or wants me to engage in Nate in a way that, um, that I can help him see a perspective change. My mission, or by living to my mission, I understand that that my space or my institution space is wanting to look at policies um, and systems and structures. Nate alluded to them earlier, um, the GI bills, things of that sort, and to mobilize our collective power in a way um, that tries to erase some of those um, those ills in society. So those are, I think we would look at question two, um, three and four, Nate. Um, I'll pass this one to you. What, what right. steps do you think should be avoided when we're thinking about yeah. and creating this environment? I'll be really, really quick. I think people have to understand the moment and see, see the murder of George Floyd, but also the murder of Breonna Taylor, the murder of Ahmaud Arbery, the murder of Christian Hall, uh, Asian young man in the Poconos uh, that occurred after uh, George Floyd was murdered, the murder of Adam Toledo, uh, young man in the Latinx community in Chicago. Um, these are moments, but they've led to a movement, and that is the post-George Floyd era. People have to be very careful about how they engage um, and do this work and understand how they're being held accountable. Um, Jamal and I talk a lot about the power of listening. Listening. Most of the issues that have come up uh, that, have, that people have shared as um, historically marginalized and oppressed voices have been moved to the center um, aren't new. <laughs> These issues have been around in society for a very long time. Police brutality, uh, substandard housing, uh, you know, food insecurity, things of that nature. Um, uh, listening is a very powerful tool. We strongly advise everyone to, to be better listeners. Finally, I would say um, in engaging in anti-racist work and creating an anti-racist environment, please do not engage in anti-Black, anti-Latinx, anti-Asian, anti-LGBT uh, racism, okay? Uh, when trying to solve the problem, don't assume or think, well, let's just move the, the, the Black guy, let's just move the Latina, let's just move, and then they will solve it because they clearly understand. We gotta stay away from that, right? So understand what anti-racism is, and understand um, uh, what it's designed to do and that uh, we all need to engage in it. We at the Ignatian Solidarity Network know that young leaders are the future of faith and justice work in our church and society. 
ISN is excited to announce three opportunities for high school students and faculty to build their leadership skills during the 2022 Arupe Leaders Summits. This February and March, join us in California, Maryland, or Ohio. This year's summits invite high school students along with faculty and staff attendees to deepen their understanding of a faith that does justice, connect with students and colleagues across the nation through discussion groups, highly interactive sessions and games, and become empowered to affect positive social change in their local and global communities. Register your delegation today at igsol.net forward slash arupe. That's igsol.net forward slash arupe. And then, and then um, I know we're needed the Q and A. So, and as I think about number four, like how do we develop measurables? I think um, I'll, I'll give some um, quick thoughts here. One, I think we have to understand our context. You got to do the work. What is the context of your institution? What is going on? Two, I think got to gather data, right? If we're going to have accountability and measurable, we need to have data. It can't be all emotional work. It can't be I theorize that this is going on in my institution. Uh, we've got to um, also data mine um, so that we can understand what our true um, issues or problems or things that we want to solve. Um, uh, and then I think it's like anything else in life, right? We develop a roadmap so we understand our issue. Uh, the data supports that this is something that we want to do, be it uh, more representation, be it policies and procedures uh, that have caused harm. Um, you know, two, it's to create and develop a plan to address those issues. Um, and I think the most, uh, the last part I'll leave with our group uh, before we invite Crystal back in for Q&A would be that then there needs to be some type of reporting system or transparency system um, that allows you to come back into the community and, and then really lean on our Jesuit heritage is, and that's a, a moment of reflection. So transparency, reflect, did it work, did it not? What, you know, what do we do? Is there the next issue to uh, tackle or do we need to re-engage with this issue uh, and try another um, uh, process? And so um, really context, right? Data mine, um, build a roadmap, uh, execute, right? And then with transparency, really have a meaningful reflection uh, that allows you to evaluate was it successful or not? Um, and then what is uh, our next steps from there? So uh, we'll stop there. We stop sharing our screen. Invite Crystal back in. I know there's been some questions in the in the chat, and we're we're excited to do to to tackle a few of those. Awesome. Thank you so much. I feel like I can just listen to y'all talk all day. Um, this is awesome. So one of the first questions that came through is pretty general. Um, do you have thoughts about the current backlash against critical race theory? Do we have thoughts that welcome to our like text messages and our, our phone calls? Um, I think we both go. You go ahead, Nate, man. I'll give, I'll give you the first crack at that. I would just say um, I think that uh, this is where people have to sort of think clearly about what's actually happening, right? So we have this, uh, uh, you know, obviously. Um, Murder of Ahmaud Arbery, murder of Breonna Taylor, very heinous murder of George Floyd in broad daylight, Minneapolis, Minnesota, um, leads to a movement where we start to see uh, protests on a global scale. Um, a lot of work moving forward, a lot of talk about anti-racism. Um, what, what might be the pushback from the right? Uh, and that, is especially given we, that we had an insurrection uh, January 6th, 
where we had, um, you know, uh, individuals who were, uh, had flags that said Blue Lives Matter using the polls to actually assault police officers. So that line of thinking can't work anymore. So, um, you know, I don't know Christopher Rufo. Uh, you know, I know uh, that he is, um, uh, he makes documentaries, so he's into storytelling. And I think he's telling uh, uh, what amounts, if you believe in it, uh, it could be an effective story that uh, if you conflate all conversations around history and around race and around trying to get people to understand, you know, policies and things that have happened in this country that have led us to where we are now, and you scare them by saying that something like critical race is going to be taught to elementary school kids, um, you know, you have to understand that it's just a distraction. It, it's not, critical race theory is taught in law school. Um, and you can learn it in a PhD program if you're around some critical race theory. It's not being taught in elementary school. It's not being taught to kids. Your kids aren't in danger. But if you pay attention to what he's saying and that debate, you lose sight of the momentum that you could be creating toward anti building an anti-racist society. So it's just a distraction. But you have to see it that way and think clearly about it. That 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 would be my take on it. Right. And I I would say uh, if I can add right that that you know that this is the age-old playbook. Um, if we think of any type of racial progress uh, in the history of our country, um, that progress is often met um, by equal part resistance. Um, and I think, uh, I think even in a tweet specifically thinking about Christopher Rufo, I think he said something. I'm paraphrasing; I don't have it up, but you know, his goal was to universalize or conflate, as, as Nate said, all things around race under the umbrella of critical race theory, to then demonize it and then to eradicate it. And I think we have seen um, that um, uh, happen. I, I think the, the, the other thought that I think is important, and, and I think a lot about, and just the um, people that I interact in, in my role, uh, is that, uh, you know, the reason why it's effective is because theoretically, we're, uh, we, we really live kind of in an ahistorical um, space in the world. I think our understanding of cause and effect from a long-term historical standpoint leaves us susceptible uh, to misinformation. I don't know that I necessarily have an answer to that, uh, but I, I, I would suggest that, um, um, that you know, we're susceptible to that because we haven't put in place, getting back to systems and structures, we haven't put in place a robust, you know, social science curriculum or really a larger curriculum in total that allows both our faculty, staff, students, or our parishes to really understand the cause of effect and particularly the through line of race to our country. If you think about, you know, the inception of our country and and, and folks that want to say that 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 our our country did not have it, a basis, you might not say our our documents were built in in, in racism and slavery, uh, but our economic engine that took us from a fledgling um, collection of, of colonies and then ultimately states to an economic superpower was really driven. Um, and the advantage that 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 the beginning of our country was driven by um, and all the lost wages of the enslaved to build power. Um, again, there's a through line through the Jim Crow era. There's a through line through the civil rights era. And and the idea that um, um, that we aren't demanding uh, that curriculum um, address those issues and that so that when folks come together and have real conversations about this stuff, that they're, they're speaking from a, a place of understanding of our history, um, it, it, it leaves us, again, susceptible to, to the hyperbole um, and the uh, propaganda um, that, that eschews that, that somehow the, the critical race boogeyman 
is going to interfere into our schools and 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 again create uh, shame and guilt. Um, there's a larger question, and maybe this is one of ours we can tackle for the podcast going forward. But um, I, I often ask the question of like, when did it become um, acceptable to imagine that you know an education doesn't create shame and guilt? You know, I think those are real emotions for growth. Um, and, uh, not that, you know, those that live today were responsible for some of these things I just spoke about, um, in terms of the institution of slavery or Jim Crow or things of that sort, but, but the idea that, that shame and guilt aren't motivating factors for a better world, uh, to me seems, um, um, backwards. And so, uh, yeah, I, I don't want to create mental anguish for, for students, but to understand like the cause and effect of how we got there, I don't, I don't know how we avoid some of those. Another question came in um, kind of on related to the idea of teaching history and what that looks like um, in Arizona, a teacher got in trouble for teaching about the struggles of, as it's written, um, of the Hispanic slash Latino people historically and what they had to overcome. Mm -hmm. That was solved by telling teachers that they could not teach history based upon different racial or ethnic groups. What is your thought about that? I mean, candidly, I start with the idea that that sounds and feels like censorship. Um, those lenses that that we can look at, you know, I, I think critical critical thinking, not critical, just critical thinking, a skill that I think every uh, educational institution in America would say that, oh, we we espouse that in our students to, to create uh, those that are critical thinkers. Uh, I think at the very basis of that uh, of that idea of being a critical thinker. Is the ability to to juggle, wrestle with uh, the context that is created by multiple perspectives, and so um, the idea that um, and I know this is happening. I, I think I saw that the, the uh, state of Tennessee just passed a law around critical race theory and and race uh, denominated um, courses or education. Um, you know, I think it, it saddens me, but I, I'm not surprised. I think this is the playbook. Uh, and those of us uh, that have it in our heart and our energy that we have, this is where the fight is. You know, I would argue in a real way, like taking our title, applied anti-racism. This is it. This is it. We got to hold very strong to the idea that um, uh, truth and, and education, truth about the, uh, uh, the, the historical context of our country and the multiple perspectives uh, you know, the only way for us to move forward, and, and as, as Nate said earlier, and eloquently, an egalitarian society is that we can wrestle with all of those perspectives. Pass it to Nate. I, I would just say, quickly, it's sort of the same to me as critical racer, as Jamal said. I think if you know, if you know history, right, we said the same thing about what um, the previous administration was trying to do with, um, you know, shutting down the 1619 project and all these you know, all these great tools designed to teach us history so we can understand how we arrived at the moment where we are right now. Um, if you know your history and you know uh, who you are, you know, your own personal history, um, you can push back on uh, on systems and all false narratives. So I just say stay focused. You know, don't, don't get caught up in believing in these. Um, stay focused. Don't get caught yeah. up. Don't get caught up. <laughs> So more generally, um, do you believe the efforts of anti-racism has progressed or declined within recent years? Progressed or declined in recent years? Uh, 
uh, Jamal, I'll just start. I'll start by saying, you know, first of all, uh, everyone should know that anti-racism is not. It was not born out of the murder of George Floyd. It's. It's. We talked about history. We we're talking uh, as we were preparing for this. Anti-racism uh, in this country, uh, particularly as a training tool, is nearly seventy years old, uh, and there are specific reasons why it has sort of had an ebb and a flow in terms of how uh, accessible it is to people and utilized uh, more broadly. Uh, it, it makes people uncomfortable which Jamal and I and Crystal, you, that's not a bad thing. Uh, we're okay with that. Um, but, uh, you know, I would certainly say it's, it's, it's progressed. Um, and that's why you see the pushback from, you know, on critical race theory and on, um, you know, teachers who are, you know, engaging and trying to help students understand the history uh, of, of this country and, and the systems and structures that have worked to marginalize and oppress um, you know, people of color and, and, and our LGBT community and others. So, you know, I, I, I would say it's progressed, but they, and, and there've been a lot of attempts to obviously keep it from progressing. So that's how, you know, it's, it, it's out there and, and it's permeating society. So. Yeah. And, and I, to, to that end, right. I would, I would, um, I'm really going to lean back kind of on Kennedy's kind of idea of like what anti-racism is and, and, the, and kind of a twofold ill, right. It starts with the idea that that we all are in, in, imbued, all of us, Nate and Mike included, imbued from society and bombarded with these like ideas of, of, of racial inferiority and racial hierarchy. I think that conversation is still awfully robust. Um, the idea that inherently people of color are predetermined to, to uh, have these outcomes that are diminished. Um, I, think, um, I think people are still uh, really obviously cognizant of that and, and and as Nate said like as the as the um the assault uh from the other side continues to stay kind of loud and in place I think I see people engaged I know personally people are are, are still engaged I think what um what we might mistaken as progress is the idea that this continues to be front page news or uh, you know that Black Lives Matter continues to like show up in our different news cycles um, I, I, I'm going to say, say like Nate said, to to stay focused. Um, um, I, just in the context of our Ignatian uh, world, right? I think about the secondary edge space where I've been in, like the the publication and creation of, of Domain Five. And if you don't know that, I would say look it up. The the rewriting of what it means to be a Catholic, excuse me, a Jesuit school, um, and has explicit language around race and anti-racism, and that our schools going forward, when their sponsorship comes up to determine how Jesuit they are as a school, will have to answer that question into perpetuity about their programs and processes around race and anti-racism is progress. That means every three, four, five years, our schools go through that. They've got to answer that question. And God willing, in the in-between time, they're doing the work. Um, I think, uh, you know, uh, what uh, the other side really wants people to do is, is kind of continue to walk by the signposts that 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 are that are either covert or over, covert or overt racism, and to to have to have no emotional attachment to 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 engage in eradicating those things. Um, and I think spaces like this, um, the ISNs really direct a response to looking at race and their own practices. I, I continue to think that the fight is engaged, the fire still burns. Um, and honestly, hopefully moments like this engage more people to get on the bus. Awesome. Thank you. 
try to get um, a couple last few questions yeah. in here, just being cognizant of time. Um, in the spirit of, you know, acknowledging harms, and then also, in, again, in the spirit of um, making amends, accountability, how do we effectively forward the work of reparation? Oof. <laughs> what does reparation look like and how do we keep that going or begin? I, I kind of chuckle a little bit just because last year, me and Nate, you know, uh, I think about economic progress. Uh, and that, that's my first thought when I think about reparations, right, is, 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 uh, um, is there some type of repayment for harms? And I know that there's the um, uh, memory and slavery project that the Jesuits are engaged in and, uh, as it relates to the Georgetown project and some other things. And, and I think there's some actual like financial re uh, redistribution. Uh, that comes of that, um, you know, I, I don't want to shirk this question. I, I, you know, I think it's a really complex uh, um, space, you know, um, again, what I would love to see personally um, is, is a dedication of resources and opportunities uh, for folks uh, to, um, to, to dream um, and attain uh, you know, those those modes of economic progress that are tried and true in America from home ownership uh, to business ownership uh, to control of the resources that uh, cause for uh, educational attainment in our schools. Uh, and so, you know, I don't know that I have a clean, direct answer, like we need this type of policies, uh, but but I think, you know, ownership of assets, um, um, economic uh, resources that allow for business development um, and a critical look at the type of resources that um, uh, will allow for a larger or better educational attainment, particularly for people of color or specifically when I think reparations, we're talking mainly for those that are direct descendants of enslaved people. Um, that's kind of where I would start, um, you know, so I kind of theorize off the top of my head. Uh, I would say, um... We can point to a few weeks ago, Governor Gavin Newsom in the state of California, uh, state of California, um, uh, uh, I guess, put forth legislation to return uh, Bruce's Beach back to the descendants of the Bruce family in uh, Manhattan Beach in in, uh, in Orange County. No, not in Orange County, L.A. County. Yeah. Um, and um, yeah, I think the idea of reparations is really about people educating themselves. Um, you know, there's. A lot of times people don't know the history of, of why people are, people are calling for reparations, but people don't know the history of, um, you know, the burning of Black Wall Street in Tulsa or, you know, Rosewood, Florida, or, um, you know, uh, and, and not just in the Black community, beyond the Black community, right? Um, I think it's a specific challenge. Uh, the Black community is, is talking about it a lot and, and, you know, consistently because one, the federal government has yet to make a statement and, and acknowledge that harm and say, like in the case of Bruce's Beach, but all across the country, this happened. We were complicit. Uh, you know, we allowed this to happen. Um, and we're going to take steps forward to ensure that, um, that, that, that justice takes place. I think the acknowledgement and then, um, you know, once it is acknowledged, activists and uh, community-based organizations continuing to push elected officials to make decisions uh, that lead to uh, returning properties, um, providing um, um, educational benefits, uh, providing 
um, financial benefits and restitution to those who have been harmed. I mean, I think those are three solid steps. Thank you so much to you both. It has been an absolute pleasure um, to spend this time with you. Thank you so much, Jamal. Thank you, Dr. Nate. For those of y'all who loved today's session, the good news is that you can continue to follow Nate and Jamal through their podcast in partnership with Ignatian Solidarity Network focused on faith and matters pertaining to race, justice, and Catholic education. Just Conversations highlights historical and current happenings in the realm of diversity, equity, inclusion, and anti-racism, while focusing on solutions, systems change, and the amplification of voices working to create a more egalitarian society for all. Check it out at igsol.net slash just hyphen convos or wherever you get your podcast. And if you weren't able to get your question answered or if you have more, feel free to email them at justconversations at ignatiansolidarity.net.